Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. For the past few years, we've set aside a week in late December for a show we call Follow-Ups. Basically, we look back at the many, many, many people in the D.C. region who've shared their stories with us here on Metro Connection. And then we pick a handful of them to check back in with and see how they're doing now. Well, this time around, we're going to head back to a Latino neighborhood in Virginia, where impending development has some residents fearing for the future. I think people are more concerned about, will I be able to afford the place I am right now? You know, will it get more expensive? Will I still be here? And we'll hear more from the transgender activist in Washington who's dreamt of building a homeless shelter for the LGBTQ community. Because when I was homeless, I wanted to go to a place where I could feel safe, where I could have some peace. Plus, we'll return to the middle of the Chesapeake to see how residents of Tangier Island are adapting to climate change. If if things are put in place right now, uh, Tangier can go on for many years, but we, we do need help right right now. But we'll start today's show with a story we've been following since June 2013, when a fire ravaged the popular hardware store that opened on Capitol Hill back in 1920, Fragers. Days after the fire, I met up with longtime owner John Weintraub outside the charred remains of the building on Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast 1100 block, and he told me what went down that fateful day. I opened the door and just saw this total blackness, smoke, but I did uh, grab a fire extinguisher and I tried to move into the space, but it was so pitch okay. black, uh, and the heat got to be too much. And so then we ran around the side to 11th Street, and then I saw the flames. I just watched it burn. And as you did so, what was going through your, your mind, your heart? Crying almost. <laughs> At the end of 2013, we checked back in with John, who was actually in high spirits about the three temporary retail spaces Fragers had set up in southeast Washington in the wake of the fire. A garden center across from Eastern Market, a paint shop at 12th and Pennsylvania, and a hardware store at 13th and E. These days, all three are still up and running, but John is partnering with local company Roadside Development to bring them all together again at the original space. Right now, Fragers is selling its annual stock of Christmas trees at that space. And it was among those spruces and firs that I recently caught up with John. It smells terrific. (laughs) It does. It does. And we're selling a lot of them, too. (laughs) As he explains, he's selling the original building to Roadside, who will then give him a long-term lease to reopen the hardware store. We felt that the easiest way to rebuild Fragers was to get a structural engineer to look at the walls, Uh, He said they were compromised. We wanted to take down the walls and commence building Fragers. And, uh, of course, to do that, we have to uh, check in with the Historic Preservation Office. And they said, no, uh, it's a contributing structure. We need to save the walls. And that took uh, quite a while to determine. And once we did that, we realized with the... uh, cost estimates for the shoring that we needed help. So we decided to partner with Roadside Development to get uh, the project going, which will have to be a bigger project than just the old two-story Fragers. What exactly will the project entail? Well, it'll entail uh, Fragers going back on the first floor with probably condos on the next few floors, and we don't know how many stories that be. They have not finalized the design or even come up with a design. 
What are people in the neighborhood saying in terms of what they'd like to see and what questions they have? Well, uh, I have concerns about parking. They'd like the old Fragers to go back. They like tin ceilings. They like the old squeaky floors. <laughs> uh, I think they'd like a better version of the old Fragers with wider aisles, which we'd have to do anyway because of the code. Will you still be able to keep that old slogan about if you can't find it at Fragers, you probably don't need it? I hope so, yes. <laughs> We're going to try to cram as much as we can in. What will that be like to reconsolidate everything? Because you've been spread out since the fire. You have had the garden center, you've had the paint store, you've had the hardware store over on E Street Southeast. What will it be like to bring everything under one roof again? Uh, I think it will be better for business. It's really been hard. We have not been back to our full sales potential. And the reason is because it's taken so long for customers to figure out when they decide to buy something, oh, where do I go? Even though we advertise in the Hill Rag, and um, it's still hard for people to figure out that the full selection of glues or tapes are in the paint store versus the hardware store and on E Street. So uh, it's, it's confusing to the customer, and I, I understand that. So it would be nice to have it all under one location. And do we know when that will all happen? It's going to be probably a, a couple more years now, just because of all the permitting process you have to go through. But in the meantime, people still can shop at Fragers. They can. We have our various locations. We have our still the pad at Eastern Market. Um, when we have to leave the Eastern Market area, when, when the Hind development comes through, we're, then we're going to go to cross the street from the old Fragers at 1230. Uh and uh, the support has been great from the neighborhood. They really have uh, helped us and the city. The fact that we were able to get back in business about four days after the fire at our garden location. Our staff has been wonderful in just keeping the business going. I've been having to work behind the scenes and just dealing with all the uh, issues of insurance and permitting for new locations, leases, and dealing with the redevelopment. So the staff has just uh, risen to the occasion and taken over and run the shop very well. And by the time you celebrate your 100th anniversary, you'll have a brand new old home. We'll have an old (laughs) new store uh, compliant with codes and uh, hopefully in in a structure that the neighborhood has had input on and we'll be happy with it. Well, John Weintraub, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you. And a few more things we've learned since chatting with John Weintraub. The entire rebuild project, including condos and other potential retail, could be done as early as the spring of 2017. The hope is Fragers will lead the way and reopen in its new, more modern incarnation before then. Our next story today takes us from the heart of Capitol Hill to an island in the middle of the Chesapeake. 
Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has brought us a number of stories exploring how sea level rise and other factors have affected island life on the bay. For this week's show, he visited tiny Tangier Island off the coast of Virginia, where residents have celebrated a particular tradition each December for the past half a century. Jonathan tagged along on this year's Holly Run to hear why, in spite of everything, residents of the island are still finding some comfort and joy. There's already something pretty special about flying in a small airplane on a clear day and landing on a small, beautiful island. But this isn't just any flight on any day. It's the annual Tangier Holly Run. That means young children and families are lined up along the runway to see more planes than they've seen all year, and, most importantly, to meet Santa Claus, played by pilot Bert Droder. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Thank you, Merry Christmas. Thank you for doing this. For the past few years, the Tangier Holly Run has been organized by Chesapeake Sport Pilot, a flight training school based at the Bay Bridge Airport. But Helen Woods, chief instructor at Chesapeake Sport Pilot and chief elf today, says this tradition started 47 years ago with a pilot named Ed Knapp. So he started bringing out boughs of holly to his friends to decorate for Christmas. And then some of his pilot friends decided to join him. And then some of their pilot friends decided to join them. And it just continued on Christmas after Christmas. This year, more than 40 pilots signed up for the trip. Each plane brought along at least one bag full of holly. Santa brought candy and school supplies. Tangier native Amanda Parks and her young children were among the first to greet the pilots. It's just the excitement of uh, having Santa flying on the airplane. Something different for us all. Usually we do everything by boat and it's by airplane and... The children enjoy it. But these days, many Tangier residents spend a lot of time wondering how much longer island traditions like this one will go on. Tangier, like its Maryland counterpart, Smith Island, just a few miles north, is eroding at a rapid rate, losing up to 30 feet of shoreline each year. Hetty Bowden, who's been to just about every holly run since the first, says her island is still standing strong. But she also says Tangier and its people could use a hand. So we're hoping we'll be here forever. You know, we hope that don't happen to us, but it's washed away a whole lot, our island has, so we need a lot of help. Help is on the way, or at least it's supposed to be. Unlike in the case of Maryland Smith Island, funding for a new $4 million seawall or jetty protecting Tangier's main harbor is in place, and construction is expected to be completed by 2017. Tangier Mayor James Eskridge is happy the seawall is coming, but he says it can't come soon enough. Right now, Tangier, Tangier is savable. I mean, we're, you know, if, if things are put in place right now, uh, Tangier can go on for many years, but we, we do need help right now. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Have a safe flight. Other residents are still skeptical the seawall will ever actually materialize. Linda Dyes moved to the island 26 years ago. Now she works in Lorraine, the island's most popular restaurant. No, I'm not confident about that at all. I, I really hope that's the way it goes, but we've been promised a lot of different times, and it seems like it's just not coming through. And then there's the larger uncertainty. Exactly how much will the seawall help, and how long before the wall has to be bigger and stronger? Dan Sclaru is an associate professor of sustainability and applied ecology at George Mason University. He says if sea levels continue to rise at current rates, in 300 years, the highest point on Tangier will be underwater. But he says many climatologists and sea level experts are predicting sea levels to rise at increasingly rapid rates over the next century. 
And then there's the looming threat of more frequent and severe storms that could come with a warming global climate. So if we have storms coming more frequently of higher intensity, like Isabel, um, which was unprecedented in, in terms of its impact on the island and, and uh, the coastal economies of Virginia, then, you know, the, the equation changes. So no one knows which exact equation holds the key to Tangier's future. But Mayor James Eskridge says amidst all the uncertainty, hope is the real key. A fitting message for the holiday season. There is hope and optimism on Tangier, and that's, that's vital to a community. Because if your residents lose hope, then uh, you're, you're in trouble. I'm Jonathan Wilson. You can check out this year's Holly Run for yourself. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, residents of a Latino neighborhood in Alexandria plot their next move as plans for development heat up. Why does it matter if it's going to be pretty if the people of the neighborhood can't afford it? Plus, there's no place like home. D.C. will soon get a new homeless shelter for LGBTQ youth. I had a very young lady come yesterday and she said to me, Ruby, I struggle on my own for the last three years. And I say, honey, you don't have to struggle by yourself anymore. Stick around. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. It's our annual follow-ups show in which we check back with some of the folks we've met over the past few years to hear how they're faring now. Our next story takes us to a place we profiled about seven months ago, D.C. General, the hospital-turned-homeless shelter in southeast Washington. On that show, Tara Boyle visited the Homeless Children's Playtime Project, one of the nonprofits that works at D.C. General. And at the time, city officials were hoping to close the shelter sooner rather than later and move children and parents into other kinds of housing. But as Tara found out on a recent trip back, that goal isn't going to be met anytime soon. If you're a child who celebrates Christmas and you recently lost your home, here's a question that might keep you up at night. How will Santa know how to find me? Will I wake up to presents on Christmas morning? Merry Christmas. Four-year-old Zakaya moved to D.C. General with her family about a week ago, but she's confident St. Nick will bring her the one toy she wants more than anything. A doll baby. A doll baby? That's a good choice. Zakaya and her younger sister are among 457 children living at D.C. General along with 319 adults, according to city officials. Zakaya's mom, Tina. You know, it's kind of rough for the kids because they not really, they don't know what's already going on, but she'll, she'll be okay. It's mainly her that asks the question, I want to go home and stuff. I told her soon we'd be out here. Until that day comes, Tina is putting her children on the waiting list for the Playtime Project, which provides a safe space for kids to play and escape their cramped rooms on the upper floors of D.C. General. It 
is a really busy time um, with D.C.'s guaranteed right to shelter during hypothermia season. Heather Wade is the Playtime Project's site manager at D.C. General. It means that a lot of homeless families are moving into the shelter, and as a volunteer organization, we are constantly working to reach a volunteer capacity where we can accommodate every child, Um, but in order to do that, we have to recruit more volunteers. More volunteers, more families, more people coming in and out of D.C. General. This is not the tale many city officials wanted to tell this winter. Six months ago, the talk in political circles was that this place, which some residents have described as dirty and dangerous, would soon be shut down. Here's D.C. Mayor Vincent Gray. I I certainly believe that D.C. General is no place for families and children to be raised. But closing D.C. General has proven to be a tough goal to meet, particularly in a city where housing costs have risen dramatically in recent years. And so the shelter will be as busy as ever this winter. Ready? One, two, three. Happy face now? Happiest face you had. Bigger smile. Even bigger than that. Ready? One, two, three. Cheese. Back at the Playtime Project, photographer Jay Austin is using a camera, tripod, and white paper backdrop to snap shots of kids. The children will give these portraits to their families as holiday gifts. <laughs> we like a Christmas morning surprise face. She gets downstairs, opens up a present. That face. Among those striking a pose is a girl named Janasia. I'm most excited about that I'm getting a lot of presents for Christmas. Her wish list for Santa is short but sweet. I want a bike, a tablet, and a phone. Janasia is eight years old, the same age Relisha Rudd was when she disappeared from D.C. General in March. Investigators believe Relisha was taken by Khalil Tatum, a janitor at the shelter. Tatum was found dead of apparently self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Relisha is still missing. When I visited D.C. General in May, over and over the children asked about Relisha. Have they found that little girl yet? Are you looking for Relisha? On this visit, they do not ask those questions. Playtime Project site manager Heather Wade says many of the children who were here when Relisha disappeared have since moved on. Yeah, I think that because of the pace at which people move out, there aren't as many children who were here when it happened. Um... And, of course, we do our best not to remind them of it. Which is why the Playtime Project plans all sorts of activities for kids. Five, four, three, two, one. Like a Kwanzaa play for preteens in the program. Oh, it's so good to see everybody. Are you excited about the holidays? <laughs> <laughs> I used to celebrate Kwanzaa with my family when I was just a little girl. It's, a, it's one of my favorite African-American traditions. 12-year-old Josiah is one of the actors rehearsing today. He's playing the role of the family patriarch. I would be super excited. I'm a good dad. Yep. Got kids right there. Yep. Mother. Yep. Josiah says he moved to D.C. General about a month ago and just started coming to the Playtime Project. Uh, this is my only second day, but I'm, I'm starting to like it. What Josiah really wants is to move back to a home, to a neighborhood where he knows people, But until that happens, he has a few other items on his Christmas wish list. Xbox, a Wii, a Jordan, uh, some shoes, oh, some shoes, and 
Close. No. You're like ready. You got your list all set. <laughs> For months, Playtime Project volunteers have been collecting the wish lists of children like Josiah and connecting with donors who can make those wishes come true. The goal, they say, is to help make this holiday season just a bit more merry for D.C. General's youngest residents. I'm Tara Boyle. We have more information about the Playtime Project and volunteer opportunities there on our website, metroconnection.org. Last year, in September, we brought you a story about transgender activist Ruby Corrado. Corrado had long dreamt of providing homeless LGBT people in the district with a safe place to sleep, support services, and a hot meal or two. And recently, she came one step closer to realizing that dream. Her nonprofit, Casa Ruby, recently signed a lease on a seven-bedroom house in Columbia Heights. Thanks to a large grant from the city, the Casa Ruby LGBT Youth House will serve a dozen young adults ages 18 to 24. They'll be able to stay for 18 months and will have access to job training and social workers. They'll even have a cook. Lauren Ober met up with Corrado to see how she achieved her goal and where she goes from here. Ruby Corrado has no shame in sharing the story of how she became homeless. Six and a half years ago, while trying to get out of an abusive relationship, she ended up on the street. As a transgender immigrant woman, she was particularly vulnerable. She vowed that if she ever made it off the streets, she would help people in her situation, gay, trans, without resources or family to look out for them. I had a very young lady come yesterday, and she said to me, Ruby, I struggle on my own for the last three years. And I say, honey, you don't have to struggle by yourself anymore. We'll struggle with you. And we'll make sure that you get on the right track. I want to help those kids because not only their parents dispose them, but they become part of a cycle that begins with being on the streets where they just get caught up in things that are not positive. So the last time I talked to you, you were hoping for some sort of shelter for LGBT people, and you've made some headway on that, right? Yes. Huge, huge headway. We got granted money to open an LGBT youth house for homeless. They stipulated that it can be 10 to 12 beds, but we are opening the 12. We, We want to make sure we use the resources to maximize what we can do for our clients Within two weeks of signing the contract, I found a property in Northwest D.C., seven-bedroom house, three blocks from our agency. And that just tells me that the higher power, karma, is really working with us. And it makes me very pleased that at least for 12 kids that are going to be in this house, life is going to be a little better. It is not just a house. We're going to make this a home. What do you anticipate the actual space being like? What do you want to provide the the kids who come there? I want to do what we have done here. We made this a home, even though this home at Casa Ruby doesn't have bedrooms. 
It is a place where they can come and they can feel that they're a part of. It is a place where everyone that comes here knows that this is a place where they can be themselves. I tell them that the reason why I opened this place is because when I was homeless, I wanted to go to a place where I could feel safe, where I could have some peace, where I could reflect what was going on in my life and how I was going to make life better for myself. So I always tell them to make sure that we embrace one another another as a family because once they walk out of these doors once they leave Casa Brewery the world is a different place the world is not going to encourage them to be themselves the world is not going to love them for being gay for being transgender the world is not going to make sure that they have the best things that they need to thrive in life. But while they're here, that is what I want to do in this new home. It's not just going to be an LGBT house. It's going to be a home for them. Obviously, it's going to be the gayest house in the world. <laughs> I already have plants for different colors. I, um, interestingly, we have beautiful chandeliers. It's that old home. But it is definitely going to be very gay. Corrado takes me to see the new shelter in Columbia Heights. It's just a short walk from Casa Ruby. Corrado doesn't want to give the exact address for safety reasons, but it's steps from the metro and close to shopping. Plus, it's gigantic. A little like dining room area. Fancy chandelier. Yeah. This is going to be the office. Yeah. I mean, this is what a dream can come to, you know. Yeah. I always tell them. I mean, my hardest clients are just giving up. I'm like, baby, if if Ruby can do it, please. And Corrado has done it. She hopes to have the shelter open within the next month or two. She just needs to outfit the place with furniture and give it a few fresh coats of paint. I'm Lauren Ober. We'll head now to the northern border of Alexandria, Virginia, to a neighborhood known as Arlandria, Chiralagua. Its three blocks have long drawn working-class Latinos. But back in January 2012, when Emily Berman first visited the area, the Alexandria City Council had approved a plan to bring 53,000 square feet of retail space and 500 apartments to the neighborhood brand new apartments that would be unaffordable to many current residents. Back then, Emily walked the neighborhood with Ingris Moran, a then 20-year-old college student who's lived in Arlandria her entire life. We're going to be realistic. The people here work construction, cleaning, and so they earn 20, 20 grand annually. People who live in the community, they're going to slowly be moving out. Possibly the managers from the other apartments are going to say, well, hmm, people are starting to move here a lot, so why don't we boost up our rents, you know? And that's when slowly the people are going to start moving out. This year, Emily Berman returned to Arlandria Chiralagua and brings us this update. I meet Ingris Moran in her office at Tenants and Workers United. She's a community organizer in the neighborhood. On the surface, she says, not a lot has changed here. We're 
in the little plateau right now where we're just waiting to see what's going to happen. The old buildings are all still here. The old neighbors are still here. But there are small changes, Moran says. And as we leave her office to walk around, she says, little by little, the fabric of the neighborhood is starting to tatter. If anyone can attest to this, Moran says, it's Dina Martinez. She's lived here for more than 30 years, ever since she immigrated from El Salvador. She used to work in a hotel um, in Crystal City. Um, and in the weekends, she would, ha- she would work cleaning houses on her own. Back in the 80s and 90s, everything was cheaper. Rent, food, transportation. The neighborhood was hopping all day long, Martina says. At 4 a.m., there'd be hundreds of people on Mount Vernon Avenue waiting to catch the bus to work. Now, she says, ahead of the redevelopment, everything's shutting down. She said all of that were stores before. Now it's just moms and subway that's open. Negocio, negocio, no hay. The Mount Vernon redevelopment has been more than a decade in the making. Some businesses moved to nearby shopping centers to find more stable leases. Chiralagua's thriving corridor is slowly emptying out. You can probably cross. We cross the street and run into Felipe. He asks that we not use his last name. He's lived here since the 80s, too, and says this new development will be really beautiful. It's a place for the people who can afford it. Dina Martinez says he's being ridiculous. Why does it matter if it's going to be pretty if we can't, if the people of the neighborhood can't afford it? Felipe says if he gets priced out of the neighborhood, he'll stay as close by as he can. But not everybody will be able to. The area is expensive as it is, Moran says. She gestures to a glass storefront covered with taped up signs. We are renting a room for two people or uh, we're renting a, a room. Um, anybody interested, call. We're renting rooms. We're renting living rooms. Felipe and Dina continue the debate and eventually Moran and I head off toward her apartment. People might not talk about it, she says, but everyone's working on their backup plan. I think people are more concerned about, will I be able to afford the place I am right now? You know, will it get more expensive? Will I still be here? Um, We just feel that this may be a way that we're going to be displaced and we don't want it to be. You know, we feel like this is our home. We head upstairs to Ingris Moran's apartment. She lives in a one-bedroom with her mother, sister, her sister's two kids, and a man who rents a small room. I sleep in the couches with my sister. My mom sleeps in one full bed, and my the two kids sleep in one, the twin-size bed, yeah. The rent split between four adults, and still, it's a struggle. We really rely on each other. Um, I help her, you know, financially. She helps me financially, so we always make it barely sometimes every month. Moran explains... She loves Chiralagua, but she doesn't want to stay here forever. She wants more space, maybe a house and a little lawn. She's the first person in her family to graduate from college, she says, and she has a shot at getting all that. But for her parents, leaving the neighborhood will break their hearts. So she's hoping the community stays alive as long as possible. I'm Emily Berman.
in a minute. People's natural reaction is, well, gosh, that shouldn't happen that way. Something should be done about that. We're trying to do something about it. We just don't have the authority to do it. Why D.C.'s animal control officers want some of the same rights and responsibilities as cops. And another edition of our ongoing journey around the region, door to door. It's all coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're circling back to some of the people, places, and things we've covered through the years with a show we're calling Follow-Ups. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza has done a ton of education reporting for us, including stories about the struggles of D.C.'s traditional and charter public schools. But today she brings us the tale of a charter school that has turned things around. When IDEA Public Charter School was founded in Ward 7, it was one of the first charters in the city. It was a poor performer, though, and in 2012, it was nearly shut down. But as Kavitha tells us, now it's being recognized as one of the top open enrollment high schools in the city. Justin Ridstrom heads IDEA Public Charter School in Northeast D.C. He walks the hallways, a pencil behind an ear, chatting with students. Today is interim exams, and so they'll be taking math tests, and then our 11th graders are doing an SAT practice test. You ready? You ready? Knock the socks off? (laughs) Good luck. On the morning I visit, everything is orderly and organized. There are displays featuring models students have made on 3D printers, a gleaming new gym, and a reading room with comfy couches. But that's not the whole story. At the 15-year mark, all charter schools are assessed. At IDEA's 15-year mark, the school was slated for closure. It was, quite frankly, the worst performing school in D.C. In 2012, this school was failing on every measure. It had very high suspension rates, very low attendance rates, and most importantly, students were not learning. Not even 40% of students could read and do math on grade level. From being a pillar of the Deanwood community, Idea School slid into desperation. Graffiti lined the walls, there were fights every other day. Students frequently brought alcohol in their coffee cups. My one teacher, he was like, oh, y'all need to shut up because y'all ain't going to be nothing but welfare recipients and baby mothers. Brianna Bennett is in the 11th grade. She contrasts those days with today. The teachers that we have now, they're like, yes, we're going to get you there. There's so much stuff that the school offers now. It's awesome. I like coming to school. I don't know about everybody else, but I like coming to school. Nicole McRae has been at this school for nine years. She teaches and develops English curricula for the school. And you have another connection to it. Yes, my dad was one of the founders of this school, so I've had a long-term history with IDEA. She says despite all its problems, even at its lowest point, this small school still had a family feel. And supporters came out during a hearing to urge the charter school board to support it. It was standing room only in our in our huge auditorium. Everyone said how much they loved IDEA. So it was a beautiful thing to see everybody come together and just say, you know, just help us, just allow us to have a second chance. Give us the resources we need so that we can prove to you that we deserve to be here. IDEA got that second chance, but it's been a rocky time. An outside consulting firm was contracted to oversee changes. IDEA's top management staff was replaced, along with 70% of the teachers. It was definitely heartbreaking. I mean, it's one of the main reasons why I decided to continue to be here. I wanted to be a part of the change. Shamari Jennings heads the math department at IDEA. He's a new teacher here. 
Jennings says students were sometimes six grade levels behind where they needed to be academically. And if a child slept through class, no one would say anything. Jennings says that's changed with an intense focus on professional development. Developing lessons that hone on students' conceptual skills and develop those skills is is a huge priority. There's also tutoring for students on Saturdays, and they have to be accepted into a college to graduate. Justin Ridstrom, the head of IDEA, says there were other non-academic changes. The graffiti has been painted over, and there are now after-school clubs, including kung fu meditation, chess, and international cooking. School management also shuttered the middle school and closed off classrooms not being used. So it felt the right size. There's a lot of stories about the third floor from the kids about what's up there, but it's, a, it's, it's actually just mothballed classrooms and it's like a walk back in time when you do go up there. <laughs> Enrollment has picked up this year. Daily attendance is now 90% and the school has made great progress in its reading and math test scores. But the change has not come without pushback. English teacher Nicole McRae says the school's work is far from over. At times, you know, it can be a little daunting, but I know if we put in the work, we're going to get the results. And I know that now from experience. On a recent afternoon, with teachers, students and parents cheering, Mayor Vincent Gray was one of several city leaders who celebrated IDEA's accomplishments. He called it remarkable and phenomenal that the school met goals set by the Charter School Board a year earlier than expected. Either the school is great or we didn't have very challenging benchmarks uh, in the first place. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to join me along with the students in standing up and saluting IDEA being removed from probation. For families, the change was dizzying. Naya Carroll, an 11th grader, says two years ago her grandmother was researching other schools for her to transfer to. And now IDEA is ranked in the top 10 among all non-application DC high schools in reading and math. What did your grandmom say? She was just like, IDEA? Wait, IDEA? She was like, really? I was just like, yes. IDEA. Almost closed down IDEA. We made a big turnaround. I'm Kavita Kadeza. We have photos from Kavitha's visit to IDEA Public Charter. They're on our website, metroconnection.org. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Last year, our reporter Lauren Landau has brought us a series of stories about the nation's only congressionally chartered animal welfare agency, the Washington Humane Society. 24-7, WHS responds to calls for assistance on everything from a pet running loose to a wounded wild animal. But as Lauren tells us in this final installment of her series, people inside and outside the agency say response to these calls could be quicker, especially in situations where public safety may be in danger. It's a Thursday afternoon, and I'm about to take my roommate's dog Chrissy for a walk through our northwest D.C. neighborhood when I hear a man shouting. I turn to see a medium-sized terrier zigzagging across the road, dodging cars. 
It's pretty friendly, so I bring it inside my house and call Officer Raymond Knoll, director of the Washington Humane Society's Animal Control Field Services. While I wait for Officer Knoll to arrive, I take the opportunity to get acquainted with my new friend. Why were you running around, huh? Did you slip your leash? Our runaway, no surprise, isn't talking. A few minutes later, I get the call. Oh, that must be Ray. Hi, Ray. I'm here. You're here? All right, awesome. I'll be right out. Come on. I put the terrier under one arm and carefully balance my recording equipment in the other as we go outside to meet Noel. What's your name? Hello, Bubba. We don't know what your name is because you don't have a collar on. And where do we find him? We found him running up the street. Actually, that dog walker over there saw him. I was trying to walk my dog, who tried to chase after him. So brought my dog back inside, came out, and grabbed this little guy. Let's see if he has a chip. Oh, guess what? We have a chip. We have a chip? We have a chip. Having a soft touch with domestic animals isn't the only requirement of Officer Knoll's job, as becomes clear when you hear his testimony before members of the D.C. Council back in July. We have dealt with rabid raccoons in highly public areas, deer that have been struck by vehicles causing a traffic hazard and potential for additional motor vehicle accidents. We often respond to situations where dogs have bitten children and are running off with the potential to bite someone else. Noel was testifying on behalf of the Animal Sirens Amendment Act of 2014. D.C. Councilmember Mary Che sponsored the bill, which would give operators of Washington Humane Society vehicles the ability to use flashing lights and sirens when responding to an animal-related emergency. It'll be the same as an ambulance, a police officer using sirens, and it'll be for emergencies. It'll be for when there's some immediate threat. It's not just cat in a tree. The council passed the bill unanimously in late October. But earlier that month, Chief of Police Kathy Lanier sent a letter to D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson detailing her concerns about the legislation. She says MPD officers follow strict rules on how to operate their vehicles in an emergency situation. But those rules are either unclear or non-existent for private contractors, like the officers of Washington Humane Society. Chief Lanier's concerns were echoed by Mayor Vincent Gray, who vetoed the bill. Chase says she's surprised by how things unfolded. When Chief Lanier expressed some reservations about the bill earlier on, I said, you know, tell me what your issues are. And she said, well, the bill was a little vague. Whereupon I invited her to either give me language or tell me more specifically what, because I was prepared to work with her on the issues, but she never took me up on it. So, Chase says, the council moved forward with the bill and gave it the stamp of approval. The council had 30 days to try to override Gray's veto, but Chase says she decided to let it stand. I won't seek my colleagues to vote to override because I want to get it right. I want her to have comfort with the bill. In a written statement, MPD says it's a little too soon to comment on legislation for the next session. But Chief Lanier is always willing to work with members of the council on public safety issues. Scott Giacopo, the vice president of external affairs at the Washington Humane Society, says the whole point of the bill is to improve public safety. A former police officer, Giacopo is disappointed by the turn of events and says it highlights a lack of faith in the animal control agency's abilities. To me, it's a reflection of the city's inability to see the fact that we are highly trained professionals, that we're not the dog catchers of years gone by. The leadership in particular are all veteran police officers. And animal control officers want other enforcement powers beyond lights and sirens. 
Right now, animal control officers can't ticket people for walking their dogs without a leash. What they would have to do is to get a police officer on the scene. That's the state of the law right now. That's Delroy Burton, chairman of the D.C. Police Union. He says only members of MPD can dole out tickets for animals being off-leash. But Burton says it probably wouldn't be difficult to change the law so animal control officers could issue citations, too. And he doesn't think that would be such a bad idea. I think the more people you have out there enforcing the rules, the better it is. Because people, when they have certainty that they will receive some citation or penalty for breaking the rules, they tend to comply with the rules more frequently. Not only that, but Burton says giving animal control officers the power to issue citations would also free up resources. If an animal control officer witnesses a dog off-leash, he or she could issue the citation to the owner without the need to take a police officer off of whatever assignment they were on to come and handle essentially a civil citation. Giacopo is currently working on drafting legislation that would fix this issue, but he isn't stopping there. The bill would address what he says is a combination of inconsistencies and limitations set down by the current law. Every single animal control law is being looked at and evaluated and judged against some of the other places in the country that are considered more progressive. We're the nation's capital. We shouldn't have these types of deficiencies in our laws. When the language is just right, Giacopo plans to discuss it with Che and other council members. You hear about bites and you hear about situations every day on the news and all over the place. And oftentimes people's natural reaction is, well, gosh, that shouldn't happen that way. Something should be done about that. We're trying to do something about it. We just don't have the authority to do it. He says the animal control industry is rapidly moving forward, and the officers who work for WHS are highly trained professionals. They could be providing a much higher level of public safety, he says, if only they had the laws and the enforcement power to help them. I'm Lauren Landau. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. On this week's Door to Door, we'll visit Damascus, Maryland, and the Georgetown South neighborhood of Manassas, Virginia. My name is Janet Nobles Reyes, and I live in Georgetown South. I have lived here now for six years. Georgetown South uh, neighborhood is located about 30 minutes south from the Dallas Airport, and we're right off of Grant Avenue, close to the courthouse in Manassas. I think we are probably about 45 to an hour, depending on the traffic, from my neighborhood, Georgetown South, to uh, Georgetown uh, in D.C. Initially, what attracted me to the Georgetown South community was the, the affordability Uh, We have a big family, so at that point was the right thing. Having lived there for six years now, comparing to other neighborhoods that I lived in, um, there's all kinds of events. There's a lot of help, a lot of awareness to the community. There is definitely a significant amount of non-English speaking population in Georgetown South, as there are other kinds as well. Just recently, actually, we were asked if if we could also have some some Spanish classes for the ones that don't speak Spanish. I like the unity. I like the place it has become. I like that every board member has the neighborhood's um, best interest at heart. And I think to have all that in one place, I think that alone is, is unique. My name is Betsy Freeman. I'm 55 years old. I live in Damascus, Maryland. 
Damascus, Maryland is located at the, the upper tip of Montgomery County. We're very close to Frederick County, Carroll County, Howard County. At the upper tip of, of Damascus is where the four counties do come together. The majority of people that live here were not born here in Damascus. And resoundingly, you hear from people that they came north from Wheaton, from Silver Spring, uh, from Rockville, from DC, uh, all wonderful places, but they wanted to be able to be a little bit more in the country. And I think while still in Montgomery County, Damascus offers that little bit of country. It was only up until about maybe two years ago, or even less than that, a year and a half, um, that the voters in Damascus voted to reinstate uh, the use of alcohol in the town. Um, as you can imagine, it was a hot button. Obviously, since it did change, there was a majority of people who, who felt that uh, being able to have a, a beer or, or a glass of wine with your dinner at one of our local restaurants was a, a plus. I think I found a place that gives me the best of all worlds, gives me the closest of you know, larger cities and music venues and theater, and uh, it's a wonderful place to live. We heard from Joanne Norton in Damascus and Janet Nobles Reyes in Georgetown South. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, Tara Boyle, Kavitha Cardoza, Lauren Landau, and Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau was our editorial assistant. John Hines produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website, metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. You can find information about all the music we play at metroconnection.org. You can also find a link to our free weekly podcast. We're also on iTunes and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll stroll through our annual Hall of Fame and highlight some of our biggest stories of the year. We'll visit the city's hospital east of the Anacostia River and find out whether it's finally getting on sound financial footing. We'll meet injured individuals on the road or ski slope to recovery, and we'll remember the day the Beatles took a wintry Washington by storm. It was just a feeling in the room, like like a, an explosion. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.